of Scripture that we were considering this morning as we turn to it again tonight. In the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus and chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 and uh, at verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And again, um, the last two verses particularly. Verse 15, Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord is my banner. And uh, with God's help, uh, we began in the morning to look at this battle between Israel and Amalek. And uh, we focused our attention in the morning upon the enemy, upon Amalek, and uh, what he represents, the power of evil, and uh, the way in which Amalek attacked Israel, which represents really the way in which the devil uh, attacks the Lord's people. He attacked them when they were weak, and tired, and uh, he attacked those who were struggling behind at the rear. Now tonight I want to focus not on the enemy, but on the Christian, or on the true Christian church, and to see how the church of God prevailed here. Israel are, of course, the people of God under the old covenant, and you'll notice that they win this war. Uh, In spite of Amalek's sneakiness and cunning, they prevail both with the edge of the sword as Joshua wielded it and with the rod of God as Moses lifted it up on top of the hill. So with God's help, let's focus on how to prevail against our enemy. Now, of course, even the world will tell you that prevention is better than cure. And uh, there's no doubt that when it comes to fighting with the enemy, prevention is better than cure. Uh, The text that we refer to in the morning, in 1 Peter 5, which speaks of the devil as a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour, well, that, that text begins with the words, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil. So that is the best form of attack. It's to be on the lookout, on the defense. 
And if we are sober and vigilant, we will recognize the devil and normally he will not be able to wreak so much havoc. But the problem is, of course, when the enemy comes in like a flood, as he has come in like a flood into our nation, into our churches, into our communities, and into our lives. And uh, we're surrounded by temptation and uh, increasingly by persecution. And uh, we are discouraged with it too. And the devil sees to it that we become increasingly discouraged. But as I mentioned in the morning, there is a very important text in Isaiah, which we often quote in prayer, or many people do anyway. The text runs like this, that when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise a standard or a banner against it. When the, Spirit of the, when the enemy comes in like a flood and threatens to overwhelm everything, then at that time the Spirit of the Lord will raise a standard against him. And uh, that's really what we have in this passage here. We have the first use of the standard that God has given us. And uh, that, of course, is our text. When this battle is finished, in verse 15, Moses builds an altar of worship, which will also double up as a kind of memorial later on. He builds an altar of worship and he calls its name Jehovah Nisai, or the Lord, my banner, or the Lord, my, my standard. Now, that's telling us, I think, very clearly that when Moses lifts up this rod in his hand, um, sometimes maybe in both hands or one hand and then another until his hand's weary, that rod uh, is representing something. It functions as something more than the rod usually functions as. Uh, the rod in Moses' hand, which is called the rod of God sometimes, usually represents simply the authority of God and indeed the power of God. Authority is lawful power and the rod of God is God's lawful power. He has the authority and he uses it powerfully. That is what the rod normally represents. So when Moses smites the river with it or when he smites the, the rock with it or whatever he does with the rod, we see the authority of God and we see the power of God in action. But clearly, the rod is representing something more here. When Moses lifts it up, it becomes a banner, a standard, or a flag of some kind. Now, I think it's important to understand at the, at the outset that the rod itself isn't really meant to be the standard. Um, it's rather the thing that the rod symbolizes. Because this rod is meant to be a standard from generation to generation. Jehovah is my banner, he says, because the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And we saw in the morning how this warfare stretched down throughout the Old Testament until it finally came to a conclusion in the days of Esther, the queen. Um, but that's way beyond the time when the rod was physically used and way beyond the time when the rod was seen. So it must be the case that the rod was symbolizing something that Israel were meant to envisage and to keep in memory down through the years. Jehovah is my banner. Jehovah is my banner. So what is the rod? And uh, how does it work? Or what is the standard, the banner, and how does it work? Now, let's look first of all at, at what the standard is. Well, what is a standard anyway? All armies have standards. I think we're not, not as familiar with the use of standards as people perhaps used to be, but all armies down through the years have standards. Standards are special flags. Sometimes they're called banners because they communicate something and they're meant to communicate something. 
the, the standard that an army uses going into battle is, is a standard that reflects their own identity. And uh, perhaps it's not really so much their own identity as the identity of, of their king or queen, the one they serve, the, the one to whom they owe their allegiance. That person is somehow represented on the standard. It might not be a facial representation of the king. It might just be some aspect of their glory. For example, uh, to take in the New Testament a picture of, of the Roman standards. They, they, the Roman legions would carry standards, and Christ speaks of these standards being erected uh, in Jerusalem itself. Uh, normally, the Roman eagle. Now, the eagle was representing the majesty of the Roman Empire. So when you looked at the standard, you remembered the emperor, you remembered the power of the empire, and so on. And that's why standards were normally very ornate things. They were very heavily embroidered and beautifully decorated. Now, the standard um, wasn't ceremonial. I mean, standards are largely ceremonial today. We're familiar with them on ceremonial parades and so on. These standards were very practical, and just bear with me because we need to understand all this before we really understand the text. Standards weren't just ceremonial, they were practical. Uh, they worked, in other words, and they worked in two ways. First of all, they worked strategically. In battle, when you conquered a particular area of land or a hill, an important vantage point, you would plant the standard of your army there. So that spoke to friend and foe alike. Doesn't matter who was on the battlefield, when they saw the standard raised, well, that's that piece of land gone. That's claimed. That's claimed by that king. And his glory or the queen's glory was demonstrated on that standard. The territory was gained. And again, at particular times of confusion, and we need to remember that battles are very confusing. When you're in the thick of a battlefield, and sometimes you see these things reenacted on film, and you think, well, look at people fight. It's, it's almost impossible not to be killing your own, because there are people around you on every side. And it's easy to lose the lie of the land. Where are you? But your standard was always a, a reference point. It helped you to reorientate yourself so that you stayed in place and you kept close to where you could receive a command. So it was a, a rallying point in that sense for the troops. Now, as well as that strategic use, the standard also had an emotional use. Uh, to put it another way, it was simply inspirational. To, to look at the standard strengthened you. It encouraged you on the assumption that you loved king and country or queen and country. If, if you loved your country, if you knew your king and loved your king, and if you knew who and what you were fighting for, then to simply see the standard, especially when it was put up somewhere new, filled you with strength and courage. And if your hand was weakening when you were wielding the sword, well, you'd find strength again and you'd start to fight again. It was inspirational as well as being strategic. And that's why uh, when a standard was actually lost in battle, it was a terrible blow. Um, you'll remember how the Ark of the Covenant was carried into battle. Foolishly, foolishly. It ought never to have been carried into battle and... Uh, Israel were demoralized when they lost it. Well, a standard function essentially like that anyway. In fact, there is, there is on record in history an instance of a Roman legion which went to war for the sole purpose of recovering a standard that had been lost. Because the sense of shame in losing it and the sense of power it gave to the enemy to capture the standard it was so great that they fought a campaign just to get the standard back. Uh, some of you who are 
believers, I'm sure, are thinking over the applications of these things all the time. And there's many of them, and we'll see, of course, some of them in a moment. So a standard is a very important thing. Uh, when it was lost, confusion would prevail and morale would go down. Now, of course, the banner or the standard works just by communicating its message. You see the king, you see his glory, and you're back to who and what you should be. Now, that takes us a bit further. What is the Christian's banner? And how does that banner work? What is the Christian's banner? Remember, this is the first battle that the church of God ever fought. First one recorded in Exodus 17. Therefore, everything is important. And this building of the altar in verse 15 and the naming of the altar as the Lord is my banner is setting out for us, for the whole of our Christian life, the importance of having our standard, unfurling our standard, and knowing the importance of this standard, what it is. It is, in fact, Jehovah himself. That is our standard. Now, of course, churches can have mottos and symbols. Presbyterian churches, to, to which we belong ourselves, worldwide tend to have a motto, which is the burning bush. Um, usually with the Latin words above it or below it, nec tamen consumibatur. It was, however, not consumed. Now, that is a wonderful motto to have. There's no doubt about that. It speaks of the Christian church in the fires of persecution often, but retaining the presence and the power of God, God dwelling in the midst of his people as a purifying, preserving fire. It's a wonderful picture and a wonderful motto. As the particular Presbyterian branch of the Covenanters to which we ourselves belong, it is quite customary to have in Covenanting churches uh, Christ's crown and covenant and a banner with that written on it, that banner that was carried by the Covenanters sometimes into wars and battles. A reminder that Christ's crown is over the state and over the church, and a reminder too that our nation is covenanted to God for Christ's crown and covenant. Now these symbols and these mottos are important. It's important that, that, that we remember what they mean and why they're there. But neither of these are really our flag and our banner. We're not actually going to be revived and strengthened by looking at the covenanter flag. It may have its own message, but it's not the ultimate source of our strength and power. Neither are we to look at a burning bush and be empowered. Somehow, our standard is deeper than that. It's more glorious than that because Yahweh, Nisai, Jehovah is my banner. So somehow, God is represented in the rod that Moses lifted up. So that Israel were to understand that this was somehow a figure of God. Now, we are not to make figures of God ourselves. We are expressly prohibited from doing it, but God can do it any time he likes. And God wishes himself to be understood and himself to be seen in the symbol of this rod. The rod is Jehovah. Jehovah is the rod. The rod is our flag. The rod is our banner. The rod is our standard. And if that's the case, then we expect some aspect of the glory of God to be seen in the rod. Now, this all sounds very strange because what's in a rod? What can there possibly be in a rod that represents the glory of God? That's a good question. We're not to forget that Moses' rod is simply an ordinary shepherd's staff. This isn't the rod of Aaron that we looked at last week. The rod of Aaron was laid up inside the Holy of Holies, inside the Ark of the Covenant. It was a special rod that budded with blossoms, with, with almonds. This is the ordinary rod that Moses had when he was in Midian. 
when God met Moses at the burning bush, God said to him, what, what is that in your hand? And Moses said, it is a rod. And God told him to cast it on the ground. And you remember that it became a serpent. And Moses had to pick up the serpent by the tail. And when he did so, it transformed back into a rod again. There was a powerful message in that. But that's for another day and another time. The only point I'm making just now is that that was the rod that he took with him into Egypt. That was the rod that was to become known as the rod of God. That was the rod that Moses wielded every time he wielded it, with the exception of Numbers 20, when he took the rod of Aaron and struck the rock when he shouldn't have done so, something that we saw last week. But somehow in this simple shepherd's staff, the glory of God is represented. Now, I think the first question for us is how? Where do you see the glory of God in the shepherd's staff? Well, I think it communicates three things about God. And uh, we'll take this first at a kind of basic level and move on to a little deeper level. First, at the basic level, the staff of Moses, or the rod of God, conveys the power of God. Our rod, like I mentioned before, certainly conveys power. And the people of God are always to remember that God is powerful. How? Let's see later. But they're to remember that God is powerful. The shepherd's staff is the basic model behind every scepter in history. Kings and queens always had scepters. You see them sitting on their thrones and they have a scepter. Sometimes it is between their legs. Sometimes it is beside them. It's often very ornate. And it represents the power of the monarch. Because the shepherd, of course, has power over the sheep. It's the symbol of the shepherd's authority. So it becomes the symbol of the king's or the queen's authority. And as I've mentioned to you several times, the mace, the queen's mace in parliament, you see it lying there, it's encrusted with jewels, it's an ornate, ornate thing. It's meant to remind the people in the parliament that it is the queen's parliament, that she is actually sovereign over the parliament. Now, you can argue till the cows come home about constitutional positions and so on. It doesn't matter. That's what the mace symbolizes. That's what it is actually there for. So the shepherd's staff in Moses' hand was telling the people that God is powerful. It's the first thing we need to know about God. He is powerful. He has the power of God. He is all-powerful as God. And we ought never to forget that, that with God nothing is impossible. As he said to Sarah in the tent, uh, is anything too hard for the Lord? But then again, the shepherd's staff was communicating love. It was communicating love because the shepherd's staff is actually a pastoral staff. As well as symbolizing power, it symbolizes tenderness because the shepherd looks after the welfare of his flock. And, and Jesus speaks about that so often. Thy rod and staff, they what? Comfort me. Thy rod and staff, they comfort me. That should remind a monarch. Uh, a monarch shouldn't be obsessed with the power of the scepter. They should consider the care of the scepter, that the power that the monarch wields is to be on behalf of the people over whom he or she governs. So, so the shepherd's staff may symbolize authority, but it also symbolizes love. It's authority for your good. It is power for your good. It's for your welfare. It's for your health and your preservation, for your feeding and for your nurture as Psalm 23 reminds us. The third and final thing that the rod of God communicated, strangely enough, is the humility of God. Now, that's a, an attribute that's undoubtedly in God, but is notoriously difficult to define. We can only think of humility in terms of a greater and a lesser and being humble before a greater, but 
Maybe it's one way to put it that there is a quality in the heart of God that once God is incarnate, reveals itself in humility. It is in God to lower himself. That belongs to his nature. And that's actually a wonderful thought. And it's a beautiful thought when you comprehend it, that it, that it is in the heart of God to stoop down. He, it is a, a humbling for God, we're told in the psalm, to even look upon things in heaven and things upon earth. It's a humbling in God to even do that. But it's in the heart of God to stoop lower. And uh, when Jesus says, come to me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, he is saying that as the second person. You can't say, well, he's only saying that as a man. Well, he only has one personality. He is only the son of God. The son of God wears a human nature and is in a human nature, absolutely so. But he's not another person. The meekness and the lowliness that he has in his heart, in other words, is a meekness and a lowliness that is in the heart of God himself. And when he is incarnate, that is how he reveals himself. When you see Jesus' meekness and lowliness in his humanity, that is a quality that is in the heart of God himself. That is why the flag that God chooses to represent himself looks like that. It's the kind of flag that would make the Amalekites say, well, what a pathetic shower these are. It's not an ornate, heavily embroidered and beautiful flag. It is a simple, ordinary shepherd's crook. To bring before us that the one who rules over us with immense power and with real love and kindness is also one who receives you meek and lowly in heart and wishes to give you rest for your soul. So these are the things that the banner or the standard communicates. The power, the love, and the humility of God. Now again, there's another difficulty here because we don't see this rod anymore. We don't have it to encourage us. But you know, a strange thing happened, a wonderful thing happened, a great mystery happened, and that is that the rod of God became incarnate. The power of God, the love of God, and the humility of God appeared in this world as a man. A rod shall come forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall spring up from its roots. And we read that passage, perhaps if it's easy for you, keeping your marker at Exodus 17, you can just refer back quickly. Now, in a way, this should be relatively fresh in your minds because it's not that long since we looked at it. In Isaiah's, Isaiah 11, page 795, Isaiah 11, verse 1, there shall come forth, that's page 795, yes, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And if you go down to verse 10, in that day, this root, this rod, shall stand as a banner. Not like a banner in a sense, but as he shall stand a banner. That's how he shall function to the people. And notice who's looking at him. As he's lifted up, the Gentiles shall seek him. And when they find him, his resting place shall be glorious. And we're told in verse 12 that it's not just the Gentiles who find him. He will set up a banner for the nations. Yes, they, they will all look to this banner. And he will assemble the outcasts of Israel. And he'll gather together the dispersed of Judah, the Jewish people, from the four corners of the earth. Now, the whole chapter is a wonderful chapter, and, and we looked at it recently. <clears throat> In other words, our rod, our banner, or our standard is Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, our great God and our great King. God manifest 
in the flesh. He, he is the standard to whom we look. He is the banner in whom we see the power, the love, and the humility of God. Where? Well, we can't miss it, really. Isaiah tells us what is obvious. Isaiah tells us what Moses is telling us here. Or Isaiah tells us what God is telling Moses. He said, get up on top of the hill. Moses is on top of the hill, not just so that he can see the battle, but so that the people in battle can see him. God wants the enemy to see him, but God wants his people to see him too. Go up on top of the hill. Any banner needs to be put visibly somewhere, in a raised place where it can be unfurled. And where was Jesus Christ lifted up? He said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me as a standard for the Gentiles and for the Jews. But, but where and when? Well, of course, you know that. It was on the cross, on that hill, on Golgotha, Calvary. That's where he was lifted up. And it's there at that precise point in time and at that precise spot geographically in the world. That is where we see the fullest manifestation of God's power and of his love and of his humility. We will never see it anywhere as we see it there upon the cross. And even in heaven itself, we won't wander really from the cross. Is that not one of the reasons why the wounds remain in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ? To always think of the cross. Yes, our experience of the love and the power and the humility of God will be so real in so many ways in heaven, but it will never be divorced from the cross, which is where it's concentrated. Paul says, after all, we preach Christ crucified. We don't just preach Christ, he says, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ <clears throat> pierced, Christ nailed, Christ wounded, Christ bruised, suffering and dying. That's what we preach. Or as he famously said it to the Galatians, we placard Christ. He was placarded amongst you. That's the very graphic Greek word that Paul uses when he preached. He says, I, I placarded him. In other words, I, I lifted him up on a pole, not with images and symbols and silly paintings, but the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ was so clear and so graphic that it was lifted up in front of the people as God's Savior, God himself, manifest in the flesh. You think about it. You think about that moment in time and space when our Lord was hung there upon the cross. That is the power of God. Why is it the power of God? Well, because that's precisely where and when and how the conquest over evil was taking place. Ultimately, in your battle with evil and my battle with evil, in our battle against the world and the flesh and the devil, we are only working out a conquest that was already purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Let's be clear about that. We're not winning anything significant. When we are crowned in heaven, we're told that we cast our crowns at his feet. Why? Because unto him be glory and power and dominion. To him be glory and honor. He vanquished the evil one. He crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. And he spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly upon the cross. He defeated sin and he abolished death. And if you want to know where the power of God is, there is the power of God. And that victory over darkness and evil is far greater than the creation of the universe itself in power. You, you could say, well, surely the creation of this vast expanse of a universe is by far the greatest manifestation of the power of God. No. The destruction of evil and out of the ashes of all that defeat, rising a new cosmos and a new heaven and earth, that is the greatest manifestation of the power of God. He defeated what was 
undefeatable. He, he did what, strictly speaking, could be done. Our God is powerful. And if he defeated evil upon the cross, then as, God, as Paul said to the Romans, the God of peace will also bruise Satan under your feet shortly. You will win. You will win. You just need to learn to look at your standard. I'll come to that in a second. The power of God is at the cross. Again, looking to Christ crucified as our standard, we see the love of God. The love that was demonstrated in a bare shepherd's staff is now demonstrated in the Son of God hanging upon a cross. Does that need any explanation how that is the love of God? Is that not the great central message of the Bible? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. No greater demonstration of love is possible. I mean, the love of God was there already. It was in his heart towards all his people, and it was in his heart from eternity. But it needed a manifestation. It needed a manifestation. And there could be no greater manifestation of it than that, that, that he gave his only begotten son to the hell that you deserved and I, in order that we should be saved with his son and share the glory of sonship with his son. I mean, that's the love of God. I mean, as Paul says, and I think I just happened to refer to it in the morning, it's even rare to die for good people, never mind to die for bad. I mean, who's going to die for a bad person? Nobody. If you're going to die for somebody, normally it's somebody that you really, really esteem or a member of your family or something like that. But God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the death of Christ has in view all of us as sinners. Not all of us as sons, but all of us as sinners. He didn't find us pretty good in order to die for us. He found us bad and died for us to make us what we became. That is the love of God. That's the love that's reached you because you needed that love and you couldn't be found any other way. It's wonderful that he found you. Wonderful. And then again, as well as God's power and his love being seen on the cross, so is God's humility. And that hardly requires explanation either. The humility in God's heart upon the cross is utterly astonishing. This is the King, the Lord of glory. This is the one before whom angels veiled their faces. This is the Son who was from everlasting always with the Father and sharing the Father's glory. And of course, when he saves us, he stoops down low. He stoops down low. As our catechism reminds us, wherein does his humiliation consist? In being born, and that in a low condition. And then a scripture reminds us, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. In other words, put these two together. To be a man is a humbling enough, born in a low condition. But being found like that, he then further humbled himself. To what point? To being stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Slandered, blasphemed, spat upon crucified. We see that on the cross. Don't say there's no humility in the heart of God when he stoops that low in order to save. It was necessary in order to save to stoop that low, and God stooped that low in order to save. How far off the mark are unbelievers, and you as an unbeliever, if you think in your own heart that God is proud or arrogant. Uh, I've had that said to me sometimes, that God is powerful and arrogant because he commands our worship. 
that is a complete understanding of so many concepts that it's just impossible to go into. But the fact of the matter right now is that how dare any of us say such a thing in the face of Calvary? How dare any of us say such a thing? A proud or arrogant God, when you see him stripped and naked, hanging there for your sake and for mine, oh, there is humility in the heart of God. A humility that's married to his love and married to his power. Now, of course, this standard is lifted up on a hill. It's lifted up on a hill. God's flag is unfurled. It's unfurled there in Jerusalem, in the center of the earth, for all the world to see. Paul says that Christ was set forth as a propitiation for our sins. Set forth means publicly displayed. Publicly displayed for all the world to see. And by the way, in reference to what we noticed earlier, you'll notice that God's marking out a territory. When, when he places his standard here in Jerusalem, he's not actually saying that Jerusalem is mine or the, or the center of the earth is mine. He's really saying this world is actually mine. Because when, when I put my standard up here, he says, I, I am going to war in a sense with this world, but I'm going to war with it for the good. I'm going to war with it to destroy evil ultimately, but also to gather a people for myself from all the four corners of the earth. And they'll see the standard and they'll know that this world is mine, that eternity is mine, and the kingdom is mine, the conquest is mine, the dominion is mine, the glory is mine, the honor is mine, and they will come to me. They will come to me. All the nations will gather to his standard. They'll enlist in his army. They'll come on to the Lord's side. That was the standard lifted up in time space, lifted up there in Jerusalem, and then 2,000 years ago. But how do we see that? If the rod to which we look is Christ crucified, if that rod was lifted up in Jerusalem, how do we see it? Well, we of course see it in the proclamation of it. When he is placarded, when he is placarded amongst us or raised up in the preaching of the gospel. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. What was Christ referring to when he said that? I, if I be lifted up. Well, there's a threefold reference. And really, you've got to have the three in it. I, if I be lifted up in crucifixion, first of all. I, if I be lifted up from the earth and hung and suspended there, I will draw all men to myself. But there's more. I, if I be lifted up in ascension, raised up to my Father's right hand, I will draw all peoples to myself. But there's more than that. I, if I be lifted up in the proclamation of the gospel, will draw all men to myself. In other words, as, as this wonderful image, as this wonderful truth is being brought from place to place, God places his standard there. He says, this is mine. This place is mine. See, tonight, in a sense, God, through the very proclamation of this text, God is placing his standard in Gardner Street Church and says, this place is mine. He is placing it in Partick. It's mine. The city is mine. The nation is mine. Doesn't matter how many other standards or flags you see. People can glory in their own flags and Scottish flags and UK flags or any flags you like, but this is the only flag that ultimately matters. The only kingdom that matters. The, the, the nation that prevails is the nation of God and the kingdom of God. Now, when we understand all that, the picture here becomes far more clear. The main point of what happens in this warfare is that God says through Moses to Joshua, you go and fight with the edge of the sword. 
I will go up tomorrow on top of a hill, and I'll take the rod of God in my hand. And Moses held up the rod of God for the people's sake, friend and foe alike, friend and foe alike, but he holds up the rod of God for the people's sake. And when the people of God see the rod, they prevail, and they win against the flesh, and they win against the world, and they win against the devil. But when through exhaustion or weariness or whatever, the rod disappears from you, Amalek regains strength and the people of God lose their power. What are the simple messages being conveyed to us by these facts? Well, first of all, we need Christ crucified to be visible in our churches and in our lives. Let me be conscious of that as a preacher. No amount of preaching will prevail if Christ is absent from it. We can't have enough of the cross, and we we can't have too much of the cross. It is impossible. It is the only thing that will ultimately prevail with your heart and with your conscience, that God came and stooped down and died for your sins to to deliver you from guilt and shame and from everlasting hell. I mean, that alone will prevail. That's the only message that will really do you good. A list of ethical essays or ethical exhortations from me on their own, though they have their place in life, are of no value apart from Christ crucified. It's what your soul needs tonight. It's the starting place for a journey heavenward. This is the door. And if you enter through this door, you shall be saved. You must first of all entrust yourself to this man. Take him. Take his gift that's freely offered and accept it. And let that be the starting point in your life. Not of works lest any man should boast. Of faith, saved by grace, through faith alone. Let that be visible. Let that be visible. The love of God the power of God, and the humility of God, let it be visible. Um, Let it be visible all the time. It's not just for people who need to enter the kingdom. I mean, you who are trying to make progress in the kingdom, and and, and me with you, we, we faint with our doubts and our fears, and we're sometimes feeling persecution, like I mentioned in the morning, and well, we feel embattled, sometimes tired and sometimes weary. What else will do but a look at the cross? What else will do? Is, is there anything else that will really do other than a look at the cross? To remember how great and powerful your king is. To remember the depth and the breadth and the height of his love towards you. And to think of his great humiliation in saving you? Will that not remind you that this is a king worth loving? Will will this not remind you that this is a king worth serving? Will it not remind you that this is a kingdom worth fighting for and worth establishing on this earth? There is no soldier in the service of any king or queen that can compare with you in the service of God. And no banner on earth in glory can compare with Christ crucified. How blessed to be on his side and how blessed to belong to his kingdom. Let Christ crucified be visible. Let me lift him up here. You lift him up. Speak of him. Commend him. Defend Christianity if you will. Sometimes it may be a call on you to defend your faith, but proclaim your faith even better. Sometimes just speak of the love and power and glory of a Savior who died on behalf of sinners, and let that do its own work. God loves the cross more than we love the cross. God will honor the cross more than we honor the cross. Just let the flag unfurl and see who it draws onto its side. Lift him up in proclamation. May he always be the center of this pulpit as long as it remains here. Whoever's here, may he be the center of it. But as well as that, make sure that we lift him up through prayer. Not just in prayer, but through prayer. 
you would expect, let me put it this way, you would expect that it would be sufficient for Moses just to lift the rod and no fight be necessary. You would say that maybe that would be an even more powerful demonstration of Christ crucified if, if the rod was lifted and Amalek just fled. But that's not the way God would have it. God would have Moses lift it up, and God would actually have Moses exhausted in the task, and God would have Aaron and her to strengthen him in it. And why is that? Why is that? Because Christ crucified can only be effectively raised by the power of prayer within the church of God. And he will only keep coming forth from this pulpit as the power of prayer keeps him coming forth from this pulpit. And he will only come forth from our lives as the power of prayer keeps him coming forth in our lives. Now, I don't think any of us probably, I mean, I could be well wrong here, and I'll be glad if I'm wrong, but I don't think any of us probably appreciate the importance of this. I honestly don't think we do. It's possibly the greatest reason for the lack of success, as it were, in the proclamation of the gospel, the poverty, perhaps, of prayer that, that goes along with it. Well, there are many other reasons, some of them in ministers, some of them in people. But perhaps, and I don't mean to cast aspersions, but it's, it's my, honest, my honest opinion, that there is, there is amongst us and amongst the people of God generally not enough intercessory prayer, not enough perhaps of any kind of prayer, not enough earnest prayer, not enough prayer that God would bless the gospel, that God would make the gospel powerful in the ears of the hearers, that God would make it a living force in the lives of the people who hear it. Of course, we all know that Ezekiel was taught that lesson when he preached to the dry bones. And the preaching itself had some effect. But the bones didn't live until they were prayed for. Till they were prayed for. And, and when they were prayed for, they began to live. And this passage is teaching us, is it not, at the outset of military conflict with powers and principalities, that prayer must accompany proclamation. And that prayer will make proclamation effective. That prayer will exalt the ministry of the word and prayer will make Christ visible. Is that not a lesson that is taught here? And it's also taught along with it that the proclaimer of the word cannot do it by himself. Moses is the prophet. Aaron, a praying priest, helps, as does her whose symbol, symbolic significance, I have to confess, I'm not completely sure of. I know his name means light. It's the same word as in the Urim and the Thummim. I think it has something to do with intercession, the whole picture, and that they have something to do with intercession and priesthood and so on. But again, there's no point in, in missing what's really important here. He was helped. And we all need to help each other. And the most significant help we can all give is to pray. Now you say, well, only, only some were praying, the rest were fighting. <clears throat> the picture has to be like that. It's, it's, a little like, it's a little like the sacrifice of the goat on the Day of Atonement. Um, it's not given us in the image of one goat, but two. You remember that one goat is put to death and its blood taken in the Holy of Holies. The other goat has the sins confessed on it, and it's sent out into the wilderness. Because you can't send a goat into the wilderness and kill it. So, so the one picture is split into two. Let the same thing be done with this. What this is telling us is not that some people pray and others don't need to pray. Obviously, that's ridiculous. What this is telling us is that the church of God must labor in its prayer, and must pray in its labor. It must, as well as fighting with a sword, may that perhaps, may that perhaps ha have an evangelical, if you pardon the pun, thrust to it, 
May, may that have something to do with bringing the word out to people. As well as that, there is the need to be in prayer. Both are there together. You can't say, well, I'm a witness. I don't need to pray. How absurd is that? This is telling us that the proper life of the church is upheld by prayer and by the visible proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have a part to play in that. And uh, having said that, there's a special sense in which preachers of the word must always be grateful for those who uphold them in prayer. And I am thankful that I have always experienced that. I'm thankful that I've never been in a place where I haven't experienced that. I personally am thankful for that because I know that I very often wouldn't be here apart from that. That's just a fact. It's the rod that matters. It's not the preacher or the prayer. It's the rod that matters. Lift up the standard. Just last of all, I want you to notice the effect that it has when when the standard is lifted. When Jesus Christ becomes visible, the army begins to reorientate itself. Gets its bearings. It, it, it remembers who this world really belongs to. It, it remembers that God is enthroned on high. That he has already attained the victory. It refocuses the church of Christ because they say, well, well that is what our ministry and mission is all about. And let's not lose sight of it. It is the proclamation of God in his glory as seen in Jesus Christ crucified. And as well as reorientating our, um, our place and refocusing our vision, it also strengthens and galvanizes us. I mean, it just has this power. That's all. And there's a sense in which it's inexplicable. It's almost inexplicable how, when you feel a certain way, you come to the suffering Savior and suddenly it's all gone. Everything else disappears out of you and everything is right with the world again and everything is right with your soul again. And sometimes you can lose sight of what really matters, but when you see him, you know that's what matters. That's its effect on the church. But what's the effect of this standard on the enemy? Well, I hinted already at the first effect of the standard upon the enemy. It's foolishness. Because the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to the natural man. I don't know what standard Amalek had. Who knows? After all, they've disappeared from the face of the earth, as I mentioned in the morning, under the judgment of God. So much for their standard. But I'm quite sure it was a proud standard. I'm quite sure it was beautifully embroidered. And I'm quite sure it displayed the glory of Amalek. And I'm quite sure as far as the human carnal eye could see, it was far superior to the simple simple shepherd's staff that was in the hand of Moses. And if ever an army was confident going against the people of God, it was the Amalekites. Well, it was a misplaced confidence. And they were foolish at the end of the day. They were foolish. Foolish to laugh at the standard. You know, the sad thing sometimes is the church of God can get foolish. The church of God can get so foolish that when they see her standard laughed at, they try and make it more beautiful or powerful than it is. What What a foolish thing to do that. We start apologizing for the simplicity of our worship and we start apologizing for the simplicity of our buildings. And we start apologizing for this and apologizing for that. And we dress up the Lord's Supper and we create new offices. And we do new activities and trendy and with it. And all the time the world still isn't really impressed. Because the world does the world better than the church does the world. And that includes music too. No. The answer is a more clear demonstration of Christ and him crucified. Sometimes the world captures the flag. Sometimes the church has a different gospel, actually, to attract people. It actually goes to the extent of having a different gospel and a different message. But there's no power with any of that. So, and, and, and the churches that change the gospel and jazz things up, they draw people for a while, and then it's gone. 
just like fizz. Just like fizz that you drink, it just goes, fizzes out. No power, no power, and it's all about power. Christ crucified is the power and the wisdom of God. But although that is the first effect of the cross, we mustn't underestimate the power of the cross on the enemy. As we preach Christ crucified, and as we placard him in our lives, and as we proclaim him, and as we pray, while that happens, it begins to cast its own spiritual spell, does it not? It begins like a magnet to attract those who were once enemies to it. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. And here's someone who laughed at the cross and laughed at the church and laughed at Christians as being weak and effectual people or whatever, and they are suddenly drawn. And they don't even understand how they're being drawn at first, but it just casts its spell. Christ crucified. He becomes an interesting figure. He becomes a real figure. And his message becomes so instinct with life and with urgency. And heaven and hell become real. And he starts to draw you. And in the drawing, you begin to be weaned off other things, and they suddenly appear rubbish. The things that glittered so much for you, the parties and the dances and whatever they were, they just, what's that? What's that? Suddenly, what matters is this. This because you are being drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ to the point where you down tools and cross the floor or cross the trenches and you enlist on the other side. Um, let me close by just urging you to, to continue to let this cross draw you and fascinate you. Um, it's not just the means of your new birth. It will always be the means of your growth too. Just as justification is next door to the cross, let me say to you too that your sanctification is next door to the cross. The secret to sanctification is not moving beyond the cross. It's found very much at the cross. Look to the cross to become holy as well as to become just. I said it was the last thing, but uh, can I say what a preacher should never say? This is the very, very last thing. Um, you sometimes see people who have such a great love for their country that they wrap themselves in a flag, or such a great love for a, for a team that they wrap themselves in the flag. You wrap yourself in the flag too. Don't just lift it up, but wrap yourself in it, because you of all people should be proud of your king. You of all people should love your country. You of all people should. And that's why when the enemy comes in like a flood, may the Spirit of the Lord lift up the standard against him. May he enable us to lift up the standard against him. Let us pray. O Lord of God, enable us to never lose sight of what must always be to our mind's eye and to see, as it were, by faith, a powerful, loving, and humble Savior who will strengthen and energize us, one who renews our souls, and one who enables us to go on from strength to strength until we appear in Zion at length. Bless now our meditation upon this word. In the Savior's name, amen. Our last uh, reading is from Psalm 23 in the Metrical Psalms. There are, there are some Psalms about which you can almost say that it's all in there, that everything's in there. And in spite of how short this Psalm is, there's a sense in which everything is in here. Page 229 in your psalm book, page 229. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. 
he leadeth me the quiet waters by. My soul he doth restore again, and me to walk doth make within the paths of righteousness, even for his own name's sake. Yea, though I walk in death's dark veil, yet will I fear none ill, for thou art with me, and thy rod and staff me comfort still. My table thou hast furnished in presence of my foes, my head thou dost with oil anoint, and my cup overflows. Goodness and mercy all my life shall surely follow me, and in God's house forevermore my dwelling place shall be. Let's stand to receive the blessing of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.